Blog Talk Radio. When I would do good, evil is always present with me. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of death? Thanks be to God and Christ Jesus. I'm ready for the fight of my life. Start the record. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Abundant Solutions Hour, where our goal is to help others be more, do more, and have more. I'm your host, Brian J. Henderson, and apparently Greg will be with us shortly. He was actually on the line having a little bit of technical difficulties, but I want to welcome everybody to the show tonight and let them know that we are going to have an awesome show. Uh what we've been doing for the past couple of months is we've been highlighting the situation over in Haiti. And last week I went on a little tangent because I was so upset to know that all the funds that have been, you know, provided, over a billion dollars provided for Haiti from, you know, many of us Americans, and none of that money has actually made it to the homeland of Haiti to affect that change. It's caught up in all this political red tape. But what I would still admonish people to do is do not let that stop you from praying, from giving, from providing clothing if you could, providing whatever means, whatever help, medicines, whatever you have that you can provide to help that nation. Because, you know, people have long since forgotten that that nation of Haiti needed our help well before the the earthquake and the different things that have gone on in that country has just been horrendous. So we want you to be in prayer for Haiti. But we got a great show tonight. We have an awesome man of God on with us tonight. And I tell you that his story is kind of tough to listen to, but nonetheless it is very compelling. It, when you hear the the passion in this young man's voice, you'll know that it's not just a joke. It's not a game. It's something that's really serious, you know, and, and that's why we don't have a problem bringing him on the show because we know he'll talk that's about right. it. I think Greg has just joined that's us. Right. Yes, I'm sorry about that. We had some type of technical difficulties, but that's okay. The show's still going. And glad yes, I'm sir. glad yes, you were sir. able to uh, take over the switchboard and uh, keep us live. Real yes, quick, sir. Now, yes, I sir. Give us yeah, I want to give this announcement. Right before we start, we're going to bring... Uh, I'll get in really quick, and I think, Brian, I'll get I heard you you're talking about him, but I just believe that a lot of people will learn a lot tonight. Uh, we've had a lot of women on about some issues, but, Brian, this is one. Uh, it takes a lot of guts, and um, we're just so glad that this person is coming on and being transparent. And trust me, please, please have your pen and paper ready, uh, our guest is the author of a book. You will want to get the book. I'm telling you now, you're going to want to get the book. But Brian, I want to just tell our listeners about a grant proposal writing workshop uh, that's going on here in Tallahassee on September. I'm sorry, on October 23rd, uh, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. You can register online for the uh, class or whatever at um, MDC. G-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. Um, you can register there. You can also uh, call uh, 
878-5818. Okay, Brian, let's get our gear. Consulting.com. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Greg, I want to I don't want to waste any more time. I I want to hear That's this right. brother's That's story. Cool. All right. Here's what our uh well, first of all, our segment tonight is entitled Men in My Town. And our special guest author's name is Keith Smith. And this is what he says. He says, I was abducted, beaten, and raped by a stranger. It wasn't a neighbor, a coach, a relative, a family friend, or teacher. It was a recidivist pedophile predator who spent time in prison for previous sex crimes, an animal hunting for victims in the quiet suburbs of Lincoln, Rhode Island. I'm going to stop right there because I want him to say, I want him to tell this story. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome again our special guest and best-selling author, Mr. Keith Smith. Brian, Greg, thank you for having me on the show. Thank Welcome. you so much for joining us, Brian. Thank you so much, Keith. Keith you know, Brian, wow. you, go ahead. I'm sorry, Keith. Brian, you uh, in the intro there, you mentioned you know I was abducted, beaten, and raped by a recidivist pedophile predator, and you know it's it's a very heavy topic. But I need to tell you, I really believe I would be the luckiest guy you'll ever meet. Let me tell you why. The numbers I'm about to share with you are very real. And for every 100 kids who are sexually assaulted, 30 kids will be assaulted by a blood relative. Another 60 out of the 100 will be assaulted by someone that's known to them, a coach, a neighbor, you know, somebody down the street, clergy, somebody known to them. 60 out of 100 kids are assaulted by someone known to them other than a blood relative. And somewhere just under 10% of all children who are sexually assaulted are assaulted by strangers. And that's where my attack took place. I was one of the 10 out of 100 who were assaulted by a stranger. Where my my horror takes a little twist is that only one out of those 10 kids who were assaulted by a stranger will actually be abducted. And what I mean by that is in an abduction, the perpetrator literally takes a child away from where they first meet. They go to a second place and the abduction takes place in a secondary location. So again, out of 100 kids, 30 are assaulted by blood relatives, 60 by people known to them, 10 out of 100 are assaulted by strangers, and only 1 out of 100 are actually assaulted through an abduction. If you're a child who's abducted and sexually assaulted, the statistics are there's a 50-50 chance you'll be murdered. So I was one of the 100 who were actually sexually assaulted and abducted and I'm here, and I'm live, and I'm talking to you today. So I'll tell you, even though that this happened, I'm probably one of the luckiest people you'll ever meet. Wow. So the, the book is titled, mm-hmm. Men in My Town, and it's, it's not about the bad guy in my town. It's actually about the great men in my town who came to be by my side. Um, but I'll tell you, my abduction took place in 1974, I was grabbed on March 1st, which was a Friday. Uh, the guy that grabbed me had been released from prison in November of 73. So he was out on the street for four months before he was back to his old tricks of uh, literally hunting for, for young boys. He had been, the first time he was arrested was in 1967. 
as I mentioned, he grabbed me in 1974. So I know of a seven-year period where this guy was literally perpetrating his horror on the streets of northern Rhode Island, just south of the Massachusetts border. Um, I was 14 years old at the time, and he was 29. I went to the police that night. I was fortunate enough that my, my father, there was no hesitation when I got home. My father uh, and my oldest brother took me to the police station, told the police what happened. Uh, they literally went and arrested the guy that night. Maybe a couple of weeks or maybe a month even passed uh, before I was asked to testify in front of a grand jury. This guy was indicted based on my grand jury testimony, but he never went to trial. So even though he was arrested and indicted, he never went to trial. And the reason he never went to trial is because somebody beat him to death before his court date. And there was a 17-month gap between my assault in March of 74 and his beating death in August of 75. And to this day, no one's ever been charged with his murder. So it's a very heavy story, and it's one that literally took me 35 years to talk about. There were just a handful of people, um, my oldest brother and my dad, my other brothers and sisters did not know about it. Obviously, a couple of the police knew about it, and some friends, uh, friends of the family, people who were older than my brother but younger than my dad, and these are the guys that I refer to as men in my town. This group of men were the guys who really made sure that I knew that despite what happened to me, uh, these guys were looking out for me and making sure that I felt protected and loved and cared for uh, in the time between my assault and, and my perpetrator's murder. Mm. Well, Keith, I'll tell you what. This is happening a lot more than I think a lot of people realize. And when something like this happens, as a child, I think you said you were 14 when this happened? Yes. Am I, am I correct? Yeah, I was 14. You're right, Rick. Right. Did you go into a shell afterwards? Did you just clam up and didn't want to talk with anybody? Um, what, 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 what are some of the things that changed in you after this happened? Well, let's, uh, a couple of things you need to keep in mind. I was 14, and it was 1974. So the reason I bring up 1974 is that 35, 36 years ago, social services in the United States were not, nothing like they are today. Uh, the stigma of a sexual assault and society's approach to addressing these things is much more open today than it was 20, 30, 35 years ago in my case. Um, I did go into a shell. Right? The last thing I wanted to do as a 14-year-old boy was to let my friends, my good friends, my kids I hung out with every single day, I didn't want them to know that I had been sexually molested by a guy. So I didn't talk about it to my friends. I talked about these kids I hung out with, went to school with, played ball with, played hockey with. I was with these kids every single day. I would not share with them what happened to me. It was my... It was my shame. It was my guilt. And I'll, let me talk about my guilt for a minute. I was a hockey player. And the, the, how I got abducted was I, I was literally hitchhiking home from a meeting of my hockey team. This guy pulled over, opened up the door from the inside of his car. I got in his car. And unknown to me, his doors had been rigged 
So once they were locked, once they were closed, they were locked and they could not be opened from the inside. So when I say he was a predator, I mean it, because he, he had literally rigged his automobile so that once somebody was in, they could not get out. So I, I kept it secret. I kept it quiet. I didn't talk to people about it, but I did go to the police. Right? And, even, you know, now, if a, a child, just listening to the news, listening to Nancy Grace, listening uh, on the radio and hearing about Amber Alerts, kids who are 10, 12, 14, they know that children get, uh, get assaulted. They know that kids get abducted. So kids today are much more aware, and I think there's less of a stigma to a sexual assault of a child in the eyes of the child as a victim. There's less of a stigma today than there was back in the, in the 70s and maybe even the early 80s. So kids today are coming out, and they should. They're disclosing, and they should, and they're getting help that they should get. Back when, I, when it happened to me, it was unheard of. And I, I, I'm not even sure, quite honestly, if the social services that are in place today were in place back, back in the 70s. So again, I was 14, I was embarrassed, and I was ashamed. And I, I blamed myself for what happened to me. It's like, I shouldn't have been hitchhiking. I fought with the guy pretty violently in his car. And I said to myself, I should have fought harder. So I blamed One thing, I kept it quiet out of, out of guilt and shame. The shame's obvious. 14-year-old boy sexually molested by a guy. I'm, I'm embarrassed and ashamed of that. I'm not going to talk to anybody. And the guilt was it happened to me because it was my fault because I was hitchhiking. It was my fault because I didn't fight hard enough. And only recently did I get to the point where I could say, I am not responsible for what that guy did to me. And the guilt is gone because of that. But it's 35 years after the fact. So I did crawl into a shell. I did keep it quiet. I didn't talk about it. And only recently have I gotten to, gotten to the place in my own soul where I could say I'm not responsible for what happened to me. And the, the, guilt, is, the guilt is gone. So I, I think being a 14-year-old boy had its own issues and having it take place back in the 70s created issues of you know, confidentiality and silence. And um, fortunately for me, and it's one of the reasons I did, did go public with it, it's to tell other people that if this has happened to you, regardless of how old you are, it's not your fault. And you yeah. shouldn't be silent. And, you know, if you can't disclose, I'd be a hypocrite if I told people if it happens to you, you should disclose. And the reason I'm saying I'd be a hypocrite is because it took me three decades to disclose. But what you can do, and my message to folks if you, if, you, if you can disclose, that's great. But if you cannot disclose, you've got to get to the place in your own mind and in your own heart where you can say to yourself, I am not responsible for what happened to me. The perpetrator is responsible. And when you do that, the guilt disappears. And I think people feel better you know, emotionally and physically more healthy because of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I tell you, this... This show for me is tough, <laughs> and and there's not many shows that 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 would silence me in. But I'm 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 almost at a loss for words. I don't even know what questions to ask. But you know, my thought really, um, I, I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, you talked about the men in your town, and I want you to talk a little bit about them. You know, and I know that's the title of the book, so I don't want you to reveal too much about what's in the book. But 
talk about why they were important to you. you know, the question that was just asked before was, you know, did I crawl into uh, into a hole? Did I become silent? And it fits it fits in with the role that the men in my town played. It's very important for us, the three of us on the show, the folks that are listening, it's very important for us to understand, in my mind, this is my own opinion, there's a very different pathology between victims who are attacked by strangers and kids who are sexually assaulted by someone known to them. And here's the difference. Children who are assaulted by somebody known to them, either a blood relative or someone known to the family, and that accounts for roughly 90% of all child sexual assaults. Those children have been victimized by somebody that they trust, somebody they love, somebody they live with, somebody they know. And once that trust is broken, those kids can never trust again. It's extremely difficult. And can you imagine being 6, 7, 10, 12, 15 years old and being in a house where you don't feel safe with people who hurt you instead of take care of you or living on a street where somebody on the street is, is harmful to you or going to school and having these things happen or after-school activities. So kids assaulted, again, it's 90% of all child sexual assaults executed by, on a child by someone known to the child. Those kids grow up not feeling safe, not feeling secure, not feeling loved, and, and not able to trust somebody. My heart, my heart goes out to those kids. In my case, and in this under 10% of kids who are sexually assaulted or assaulted by strangers, we're not, we weren't violated by someone who was supposed to love and protect and, and people that we trust. My sexual assault... I tell people it was a random act of violence. It was just sexual violence. But it was a random act of violence. So I have no issues with trust. Because I wasn't violated. I wasn't hurt. I wasn't beaten by somebody that, that, you know, that I trusted. It was somebody I never saw before in my life. So I think that makes it very... There's a difference, right? It makes it very different for a child. Uh, depending on whether they've been assaulted by a stranger or whether they've been assaulted by somebody that they uh, that, that they know and, and ideally love. The, the reason the men in my town was so special and important to me and the reason the name of the book is called Men in My Town is because a, hand, a handful of guys, older than my brother, younger than my dad, I, I grew up in a town, you know, there were elected officials who run the town. And then there's a bunch of men in the town who actually run it who have never been elected, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I, I grew up in a small town just outside of Providence in Rhode Island, and um, these guys were, were great men. They, they had regular jobs, and in my book I talk about some of them were doing things on the side. They were bookies, and uh, I grew up in a town with a professional thoroughbred racetrack. So if you can imagine some of the stuff that might take place in a town you know, around a thoroughbred track, but these guys, so these guys who were the unofficial leaders of the town, uh, were known to me, and they they made me feel like, as I mentioned before, loved and protected. So these guys were somebody I knew I could look to for trust, right? Because they were there, and without them coming right out telling me, "I know what happened to you," they very subtly let me know. 
But they were aware that if I needed anything, they were there to protect me. So the men in my town were real guys, great characters, who offered me this, this zone of safety and security in an environment, in my own hometown, where I was a victim of a random act of sexual violence. And that, that's why it's called Men in My Town. That's why I chose to write uh, the book. And the book isn't so much about a sexual assault. And it's not so much about an unsolved, brutal murder of the perpetrator. The book is about a 14-year-old boy's relationship with these 30, 35, 40, 45-year-old guys in his town who were offering me this, this refuge, you know, in, in a time that was very... Uh, very difficult for me. So you, you see, see the difference where kids who are assaulted or sexually abused by someone known to them, they can have a very different outlook, a very different pathology than someone who's attacked by a stranger. So trust for me is not an issue. Random acts of violence are things that really bother me, right? And it doesn't have to be sexual violence. Just a random act of violence is a trigger for me, which can, can bring back what happened to me. Um, mm-hmm. So that's... Uh, as an adult, and this happened what thirty-five years ago, uh, are you married now, or if so, are you having problems uh, in your marriage? Because a lot of people, when they've been molested, that that's something that they they have issues later when they when they become married, or, in, or when they're inside of a relationship of a, a relationship. Um, doesn't matter if they're married or not, but did you are you, are you having any issues now um, reliving what happened um, and just thinking about it when you're with someone? Yeah. Greg, you bring a, it's a great question, and you bring up a point, and a lot of, again, I think the difference, I don't have problems in relationships, um, you know, that are related to my assault. And I, and I think that the difference there is because, again, I was attacked by somebody who was a, a total stranger, and it was a random act of sexual violence. So I think where people, and this, again, this is my own opinion, but I think where people who have been <clears throat> assaulted by someone known to them, who can never trust because of that, you know, grow up as adults and get into loving relationships, and I think it's difficult for them. Like, how do you trust another partner as an adult when you've spent 10, 15, 20 years, you know, growing up going through abuse and not, not being able to trust someone that you're supposed to be close to, right? So for me, and I understand how that happens to people. You know, if, you've never, if you've been from, from a child to an adolescent, to a teen, to a young adult, to adult, if you could never trust the people who were around you because they were the ones who were hurting you, how do you get into a loving relationship with somebody else that's based on trust? So I, I can understand how people have relationship issues. But for me, it's different. And it's only different because I was never violated by someone I was supposed to trust. I got hit by a total stranger. So it doesn't mean I didn't have problems, though. So my relationships, my my loving relationships, were not affected by what happened to me. But as I mentioned, random acts of violence are triggers to me, right? So I would see on the news that some kid got abducted, and that that would be a trigger which would take me back to these horrible memories that I would rather have repressed, right? Um, there were, there were, there were, there's a, if you can imagine, like I said, I, get, I was hitchhiking and I got in this guy's car. 
the assault and the abduction took place over about a two-hour period. When it was over, I busted his car up pretty bad. So I, I knew I needed to leave some marks so the police could find his car. But when, I, when, when the attack was over, it wasn't like I had dropped off at my house. Right? I had no idea where I lived. So I needed to get away from this guy, and I had to get to the safety of my, my parents' house. So I was literally running home. It was very dark. It was on March 1st, and it was about 8.30 in the evening. It's pitch black outside, and I'm running down the street trying to get home. So picture this. I'm not yet home. I'm not yet safe, but I'm out of this guy's car, and I'm away from him, but I still think he's chasing me. The reason I bring it up is that moment in time has been a recurring nightmare for me for 35 years. So when you asked, is there any, you know, lingering effects of what happened you know, in, my, in my life as an adult, I can say yes, but it, but it didn't interfere with my ability to enter into and, and maintain loving relationships with other people, but I've had this recurring nightmare of my run home after I get out of this guy's car and before I was in the safety of my parents' house. And about two and a half years ago, um, I literally had, again, one of these nightmares, and I jumped out of bed literally screaming for help as if I was running home screaming for help. And at that point, my wife suggested maybe it's time to get some teeth. And uh, she was absolutely right. So I did it for the first time. I went to see a, a therapist and uh, was in therapy for about a year and a half. And uh, through the ability to talk to a therapist and to talk to other people and to finally share this story and most importantly, get to the point where I could say, I am not responsible for what that guy did to me. That really turned it around for me, both physically as far as my health goes and, and emotionally. Does that answer your question, Greg? Sure. Yes, yes, yes. That answers my question. And, and, and Keith, uh, now that we're talking about 35 years later, and you know, I want to talk about other people that, are experiencing this, or that went through this, and we know that the times are different. You didn't have the help, the social workers and the, the, the psychiatrists and whatever. You didn't have that uh, at your, uh, you, you know, now anywhere you go you can get help pretty much. It's it's readily accessible to to everybody right now. But 35 years ago it wasn't. And being a, a male and something like this happened, most boys won't say anything. And, and now... It's even worse because the way that people view homosexuality and, 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 and all of this other stuff, the way that they view it and, and they're so hard on them, does that make it harder for a child now to come forward and say, this is what happened to me? And the reason I ask that, I know because you said that if something like this happens, you need to tell someone. But isn't it kind of hard for someone, a, a kid or a woman, it doesn't matter what sex you are right now, but it makes it, it it's just a hard thing to talk about now and tell someone um, years later. It, yeah, I, I think it's extremely hard. Oh, absolutely. A couple of points. It is hard to talk about. And when it happens, you have to make a choice. You know, are, you, are you going to talk about it and seek help? or you're going to not talk about it and just try to internalize it. So whether it took place 70 years ago, you know, in the 70s it was difficult to talk about, but if a 14-year-old boy or a 30-year-old woman 
was sexually assaulted today, I can guarantee you as a victim it's going to be extremely hard for them to talk about. I think what's better today is that there's less of a stigma today so that if you did talk about it, people don't blame you, you know, as the victim. And I think that there are social services available today, readily available today that didn't exist in the past. So if it was difficult in the 70s for a victim in the 70s to talk about it when it happened, and I think it's equally as difficult for a victim today to make the decision to talk about it today. But I think that the world's a little more understanding of these things, and again, the social services are in place to help. So if you do choose to talk about it, I think the help will come to you today a lot faster than it did in the past. And, and again, what I, what I want to stress to people who are, who are going through this is if you cannot talk about it, if you can't disclose, that's okay. That's your choice. I will not tell people you've got to disclose. But if you choose to remain silent, do me a favor. Do yourself a favor. Get to the point where you can say to yourself that as a victim, you were not responsible for what happened to you. See, see what I'm saying? There's a difference between disclosing and raising your hand publicly and saying, I was sexually assaulted. And whether it's a child, whether it's a male, or whether it's an adult and it's a male or a female, it's, it's, it's an extremely difficult thing to do. But if you blame yourself for it, it will it, be self-destructive. So if you, if you want to disclose, go ahead and do it. And the help is there and I'm sure you'll get help right away. If for whatever reason you choose not to disclose, that's your personal choice and I'd respect it. But as somebody who's been through it, I would encourage you to get to the place where you can truly say, and you've got to truly believe, that what happened to you is not your fault. And that's one way where you can, make, you can get control of the situation that you find yourself in. And I've told people this. Personally for me, I consider myself a victim of sexual assault for 35 years. And I'm not trying to be trite. But when I, found, when I found that spot where I could say to myself, I'm not responsible for what this guy did to me, I was no longer a victim of sexual assault. I literally became a survivor. And again, I'm not trying to be trite. But I, I made the transition from being a victim to a survivor when I could put the blame and the guilt where it belonged. And that was on the perpetrator, not on me as the victim. I used to hold myself guilty because I was hitchhiking. A 14-year-old kid versus a 29-year-old guy. I weighed 110 pounds. I don't know how much he weighed. But at, at the age of 14 and 110 pounds, I said I was guilty for what happened to me because I didn't fight this guy hard enough. And I carried that guilt for a long time. 17 months after my attack, the guy who attacked me was beaten to death. And for the next 35 years, and again, no one's ever been charged with his murder, so for the next 35 years after his death, I was walking around waiting for my phone to ring, for me to get the phone call, and somebody in Rhode Island telling me somebody I knew got arrested for killing that guy. That call never came, but I was anxious, literally harboring some guilt over the fact that someday somebody I knew might go to jail for killing that guy for what that guy did to me. And I also needed to get to the place where I said, not only am I not responsible for what that guy did to me, but I'm not responsible for what other people did to that guy either. Yeah. And once I got there, that's when I was able to make the transition from victim 
to survive, and, and other people can do that. Absolutely. You know, I, w- I wanted to uh, also talk about, you know, you mentioned earlier that the social services back then, you know, weren't as they are now. I don't know if you remember the Adam Walsh case where the uh, the five-year-old boy, Adam Walsh, was abducted from a Hollywood uh, mall, and they found him, uh, they actually found his head uh, months or years later. But uh, his father is uh, John Walsh, who was over America's Most Wanted, and that had become his crusade to help abducting and missing children for years. And, you know, one of the things that I learned from that case is that that was sort of the shift that occurred, um, you know, nationwide from how they treated abduction cases. Because in the past, you know, they would, it, it wasn't so. You know, it was very limited resources, you know, but, you know, I truly believe because uh, John Walsh, you know, had that situation happen with his son, and he, you know, he had a little bit of money back then, so he was able to pool those type of resources, and because it was a child that was so young who was abducted, and the way he was abducted, you know, pretty much broad daylight, you know, at a mall, you know, where all these people are, you know, I think that really brought change to the system. You know, but my question is, do you believe that things have gotten that much better? Brian, things are incredibly better. And, and I'm glad you brought up John Walsh. Uh, I'll give you some, I'll share some examples with you to kind of justify my comment that things have gotten so much better, incredibly better. If you're in a Walmart, you, know, you, you mentioned that Adam was, you know, literally in the middle of the day in a mall mm-hmm. and somehow got separated from his mom and all of a sudden disappeared, right? If you're in a Walmart today and you get separated from your child, you know that you can go to any Walmart clerk working there, tell them that your chi- you've been separated from your child. They issue something over the loudspeaker called a code Adam, mm-hmm. and the doors and the doors to Walmart get locked. Nobody's yeah. coming in. Nobody's getting out. So, if your child is just lost in the store, there's no way the kid's going to walk up to the automatic door, step on the mat, have the door open, and he walks out, or she walks out. There's also no way that somebody who might be with your child is going to get out of the building. Those things are directly related to the work that John Walsh is doing. The Amber Alert, right? It's all about Megan's Law. I live in New Jersey. I'm just north of Trenton. Megan's Law, which we all know about, was named after a young girl named Megan Kanka. Megan lived in Hamilton, New Jersey, not far from where I live. Megan was abducted by her next-door neighbor. It's okay to say his name. It's a public record. The guy's name was Jesse Tamendaquis. Tamendaquis had been arrested a number of times and did time in a prison facility in New Jersey for sex offenders. He lived across the street from young Megan Kanker and literally said to her, do you want to come and see... It was an animal. I don't know if it was a puppy or a cat is the oldest ruse in the book. But he used it, and Megan walked across the street into his house. They found her body in the Mercer County Park the next day. 
So Megan's law was enacted so that people who, who have been convicted of crimes against children have to register and the public's aware of the risk that might be across the street or down the street or in your neighborhood. So we've got things like the code atom in stores so to lock down a store so that a lost child doesn't become an abducted child who doesn't become a dead child. Right. We got Megan's Law for notification of convicted registered sex offenders to make your neighborhood safer. And I'm going to talk about the Amber Alert, right? Because you know, we, we've all heard about Amber Alerts. But there's a, a fantastic story on the news today. I'm going to give you this guy's name because he's a hero. His name is Victor Perez. P-E-R-E-Z. The story broke yesterday. You can Google it. It's on the news. It's all over the web. In Fresno, California, an eight-year-old girl was abducted and held for 11 hours. The Amber Alert system kicked in, and they broadcast the description of the guy who took the girl, the little girl, the eight-year-old girl who was missing, a description of his truck, and his license plate number. Now, this gentleman, Victor Perez, has no idea who the girl is, no idea who the abductor is, but he's got a description of the truck and the license plate number. And don't you know that Victor Perez is driving down the street in Fresno, California, and he sees the truck. So according to the news reports, Victor Perez pulls up on the side of this guy, starts yelling at him through his truck, trying to get his attention. The guy's ignoring Perez, the little eight-year-old girl pops her head up from the driver's seat, you know, from the passenger seat. Perez sees the girl in the truck, and then literally, I'm not suggesting we all do this, but I'm glad Perez did, Perez then veered in front of the guy's truck and drove him off the road. The little girl jumped from the truck and ran to safety. This isn't a fable. This, this isn't a Disney story. This is a news story that's less than 24 hours old. So the Amber Alert puts the information out. A good Samaritan named Victor Perez is driving down the street in Fresno, California. And I'm telling you, he saved this girl's life. I'm not trying to be dramatic. I want to go back to what I opened the show with earlier. Out of 100 kids that that are sexually assaulted, 10 will be assaulted by a stranger, and only one of those 10 who are assaulted by a stranger will be abducted. And if you're that one out of a hundred kids who's abducted and assaulted, there's a 50-50% chance she'll be killed. The guy who took this eight-year-old girl in Fresno, California, had her for 11 hours. The chance of him probably killing this girl, 50-50. The chance of her being alive because of Victor Perez and the chance of her being alive because of the Amber Alert is 100%. So with things like Code Adam, Megan's Law, um, Amber Alerts. I think it's, we're, we're operating in a much safer world for adults and for children. Well said, well said. What are some of the safeguards that we can, as parents and as school teachers and as um, over, anyone over children, what are some of the safeguards for us to uh, you think we need to implement on a day-to-day basis? Greg, you know, earlier you asked, is it difficult to disclose? And it is. So here's a safeguard. 
if a kid's got the courage to disclose to you as a parent or an uncle or an aunt or a school teacher, member of the clergy, a coach, if a kid's got the courage to finally disclose that somebody's doing things to them, you've got to believe them. That's number one. That's what we can do. So if you're in a position where a child discloses to you that they're a victim of abuse, you've got to believe the kid. Because if that kid believes you don't believe them, they're going to shut down and just continue going through the abuse. So number one, first thing we can do to help kids is when they disclose, believe them. Get them help. The other thing is trust your own instincts. If, if you think something's going on, it probably is. Right? If you need help in going to the authorities, there's a, I've looked at a number of different agencies throughout the United States to try to figure out what's the one answer to the question of where should I go if I don't know what to do? And I've got the answer for that. It's called, the, the phone number is 1-800, it's really simple to remember, 4, the number 4, A, the letter, child. So it's 1-800-4-A-CHILD. So if you want to remain anonymous, but you want to ask questions, or you want to turn something over to the authorities, and you want to remain anonymous and confidential, you can call this number, 1-800-4-CHILD. And Child Help USA is the name of the agency. They will take it, and they'll take it to the authorities. And, and the, whoever the person is that turns it in can remain anonymous. You don't have to give up your name. You can remain confidential, so they won't, this agency won't violate what you've said. And they're open 24-7. So number one, if a kid discloses, believe the child. Number two, if you've got some doubt, you've got to know where to go. And I'm telling you, if you want to do it for a child, call 1-800-4-A-CHILD. Um, I, I talked earlier about 90% of children who are assaulted are assaulted by someone known to them. So we've all heard about stranger danger. And I won't minimize the, the risk of stranger danger because I got abducted by a total stranger. So I am that 10%. But I'm only the 10%. The 90% of kids are abducted by, are hurt or assaulted by someone known to them. So be careful as an adult. Be careful with the, 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 your child, this precious child of yours. Be careful of who you put them in front of. Right? If, if you're going to leave, if you're going to, it's amazing to me that I won't go into the details of how I know what I'm about to tell you, but it's amazing to me that that parents will leave a child with another with someone they know when they know that that person they're leaving the child with has either an alcohol or a drug problem. Hmm. All of a sudden, the person with the alcohol or drug problem, men and women, by the way, end up assaulting a child. And we wonder how it happens. So, you know, if you're going to leave your child with somebody and you know that the person you're leaving with has a drug or alcohol problem, do me a favor and don't do it. Because you're, you're putting the child in a position. If 90% of kids are assaulted by someone known to the child, we need to be more careful of who we know, not the stranger. Okay? Um, let's see if I can come up with some more for us. Yeah. Oh. There are some simple rules. If you, 
if you're going to put your child in a program, after-school program, um, extracurricular activity, karate, scouting, sports, one of the things that we should all do as parents is make sure that the organizations that are running these events, that they, these organizations screen the people who have access to our children. So soccer coaches, soccer league you enroll your son or daughter in, the league should be running background checks on people who want to be coaches. That's right. That's You, you know, it's right. important you said that because we've had uh, an issue here locally where our coaches were upset because they had to pay to uh, get screened. And it's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, Greg and I actually coached youth football for a number of years, and, you know, we didn't have a problem with paying, you know, to get screened. That wasn't an issue for us, you know. But some of the coaches, they had issues, and, of course, what happened? When they did end up screening them, they, they weeded out quite a few of them because they were yeah. they had unsavory characters, you know. Yeah, Brian, I think what's important is that we, you know, there are so many things we could do. I'll make it simple. Be very careful about who we put our kids with in unsupervised situations where one adult has access to one child. But, you know, that, that should be like the overreaching prospect here, is minimize the amount of time one adult has private time with one child, right? You've got three or four kids with an adult, not going to be a problem. And then, then, you know, if you want to take it to the next level, we want to make sure that the adults who are around our children are screened so that their backgrounds are checked before we expose our children to, be, to you know, being around these people. And then... Again, I can't stress enough. A child discloses, you got to believe them. And when a child discloses, you've got to know where to go. Right? You can't wait a week or two. Right? So, uh, but, but really, consider, uh, consider asking programs and uh, organizations that are working with children to tell you as a parent what are the rules and what are the procedures these organizations have in place to make sure that the adults who have access to our kids have been properly screened to make sure that there's nothing in their past. Now, you know what? Nothing's a fail-safe. And somebody, somebody might have never t- bothered a child, never been arrested for it in the past. That doesn't mean it might not happen with them in the future. But we need to minimize the, amount of the, the risk that these kids face every day. And, you know, we, we live... Kids can live healthy lives and be around great people as adults. I personally grew up, you know, I played hockey. Some of the most important men in my life were the hockey coaches, right? So these guys did have one-on-one time with us, but they were great men. So I don't want anybody to think that we shouldn't be putting kids in organized sports. We shouldn't be putting them in extracurricular activities. But let's be smart about it. You don't want to scare kids. Let kids grow. Let kids be kids. Let kids grow up healthy. As adults, it's our obligation to protect our kids. It's not up to the kids to protect themselves. And the way we can do it as an adult is to, is to hold people accountable who are doing things with kids to show that they've taken the steps to make sure that our kids are safe when they're working, you know, when they're working or being coached or spending time and learning things from these adults that we put them in front of. Keith, let me ask you this. How do you, you know, you have a lot of school teachers. I have a lot of school teachers listening right now. I have a lot of parents listening as well. And I was just asked a question off of Facebook. What are some of the signs 
that we should look for in the children that something may be going on. Because like you said, a lot of them, they won't say anything. So what are some of the signs? Yeah. From what I understand, um, Greg, a, a child who's a normal, happy, healthy kid, you know, all of a sudden the kid is introverted, angry, acting out, rebellious. You know, if it's a regular 13, 14-year-old kid, it might be a stage they're going through. But ask them about it. Ask them if something's wrong. But if they're six and seven years old, and all of a sudden they've gone from being happy and healthy, and then all of a sudden they're rebellious, defiant, angry, there's signs something's wrong. There's nothing wrong with taking a child who's, who's young, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old kid, and taking them to a doctor, right? Let a doctor literally examine the child. There are physical signs of sexual abuse that are unmistakable. So, again, if you think there's something wrong, take your child to a doctor. Right? But there are other signs. Some of, these, some of these perpetrators will spend months getting into the good grace of a child. And if you're six, seven, eight years old, and someone who's been good to you touches you inappropriately, but then tells you that this is normal, and this is a way that adults tell kids that they love them, they're actually brainwashing the child to believe that sexual abuse is a normal act. So you're with me on this, right? So the, the kid doesn't realize that what's happening is bad because the person that's doing it to them is someone the child trusts, right? Someone who's supposed to be protective of the child and somebody who's actually you know, doing things with the kid and telling the kid, this is the way adults show that we love you. So now the child believes that this touching is appropriate the child, I'm making this up, is eight years old in the third grade. And what does the kid do when he goes to school or she goes to school? The kid touches another kid that way. Because the child who's been abused believes that's the way we show we like people. This is the way we show we love people. So, you know, the, the uh, professionals, and I'm not one, by the way. I'm, I'm not a social worker. I'm, you know, I'm not a counselor. But the professionals who are in the business have told me that acting out, right, acting out in, in violent ways, acting out in sexual ways that are way beyond the age of a child is a telltale sign that something's going wrong, right? So, again, uh, there are, there, again, there are physical signs of abuse. Uh, you know, as an adult, as a parent, you'd be able to see that in a child. Take, it to a, take your child to a doctor and get it confirmed. There are behavioral signs of abuse. Healthy, happy kids become angry kids, defiant kids. Um, children with nightmares. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about the actual you know, kid who has a regular nightmare. We're talking about kids who have repeated nightmares. Uh, people who, have, who normally do things and all of a sudden don't want to do those things anymore. Uh, if you're always going to Uncle Bobby's house and all of a sudden the child doesn't want to go to see Uncle Bobby anymore, and if the child is really acting up about going to see Uncle Bobby, it's probably something going on, right? So again, there, there, there are signals, and I, what I want people to focus on 90% of sexual assaults, I've said it probably five times so far, but 90% of sexual assaults of children are done by people known to them, right? So if, if a child is changing behavior around adults that they were normally around before, you know, I wouldn't panic about it, but I'd, I'd, I'd look at it, I'd talk to the child and ask what's going on and give the child the opportunity to disclose. And if they disclose, you've got to take them seriously, you've got to believe them. So between 
physical signs and behavioral signs. I think as adults and as, as caretakers of children, there's enough there that, that if, if you're aware of these things, I think that's the point, right? As adults, we need to be aware that this stuff happens. We need to be aware that 90% of the time it's going to be perpetrated by someone we know so that when these signs are, are in front of us, we don't dismiss them as something else. And that we, we say to ourselves, is it possible that someone's abusing this child? And then we take appropriate action. Now, now let me ask this question. Because, you know, this probably is the most important question I'll ask you all night. As a parent or as a guardian or, or caretaker of that child, how do you begin to ask? Because I know that's a question that I've heard before. You know, how do you ask a child, hey, did somebody touch you? Because if they're trusting that person and they're thinking it's okay, they may try to, uh, you know, cover for that person. You know, if they find out that something's wrong and they say, well, you know, because you got to remember, when you have someone who's doing this, they're they're smart. Even though they're, you know, what they're doing is wrong, they're not just going to, say, hey, I'm going to do this and not put something in that child's head to say, if somebody asks you, this is what you say. Or if somebody says, you're doing this, you know, don't say that because then that will hurt mommy or that will hurt daddy. So they'll put certain things in those kids' heads to make them, you know, protect them. So what what would you ask a kid? How could you get that kid to talk to you about what's going on? Yeah. You know, you're so right. Um, a lot of these perpetrators, the ones that are working kids, will we'll tell kids, you know, if you say something, some of them come right out and threaten. But if you tell, I'll hurt you. If you tell, I'll hurt your brother or sister. If you tell, your parents will be mad. So now these kids, not only do they realize something's wrong, they feel that to protect others, they need to remain silent. That's got to be the worst one. I, I don't know how you get through to that child, right? But I think what you'd see as a caretaker or as an adult you would see that there's a behavioral change in the kid. And I think at that point you, you really need to have, hopefully, that you know you have a, a trusting, loving relationship and the conversation with a child isn't something that you're going to start to have when they're 10, right? And that you've been having these conversations with kids, not about sex and about abuse, but just having conversations about being able to talk to each other. So, you know, when they're old enough to talk, kids two, three, four, five years old, you should, you know, have a dialogue with them about anything, right? Just about life, so that when, they, when they're in a position where they need help, they're comfortable in talking to you and coming to you for trust. But, the, you know, the real question, I, I didn't answer it. The real question is, how do you get these kids to talk to you? And I, I, I think that at a young age, it's age-appropriate knowledge, right? We need to teach kids something as simple as part of your body that's covered by a bathing suit is for nobody to touch. And if you're three and four years old and you know that, Somebody starts touching you when you're seven or eight. I think if you've been, you know, for three or four years, you've already known if somebody touches you with a bathing suit covers, and you know, you can, you can have that conversation with an adult. I know people who have actually told kids that, you know, no one's allowed, no one is allowed to see the child naked. So now the kid goes for uh, like a doctor's appointment, right? A school physical, and it's very simple. You know, the, the mother or the father will say to the child, "It's okay for this doctor." because the door is going to be open and I'm going to be on the other side of the door, right? So we, we do have to give kids some rules. Yeah, so and that that's, what I do. that's actually what I do with my kids. You know, I'm actually the, in the room. Even though I know the doctor is cool, you know, I'm still in the room. 
Yeah. You know. But you, you know what happens with, and, and it depends on the age of the child, right? Five-year-old right. kid doesn't care. Five-year-old kid take off all the clothes, run around naked in your house, <laughs> because they're five and they don't, you know, they they're, they're not self-conscious yet. But you're 14. You know, 14-year-old boy probably doesn't want their mom or dad standing in the doctor's office with them, right? So right. that so that becomes an issue. You know, it, it's behavior on how to work with these kids and how to get them to disclose is almost age dependent, right? So a, a young child, you know, a, a young child, I, I think we really we have to be aware that a child is probably threatened, probably scared, right? And doesn't want to disclose. And that's when we as adults need to be laser focused on the telltale signs of rapid changes in behavior, rapid changes in mood, and things like that. So that if it's a four or five or six or seven year old kid who's probably not going to be able to tell, we can pick up on the signals, we can take action, we can take the child to a doctor, let a doctor examine the child, and then we can take it from there. The older kids, like I was 14 years old as I mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. I had no question about whether or not I was going to disclose. I knew during the two hours of my abduction and assault, I said to myself more than once, if I live through the night, this guy will pay. That gives you some indication. I thought maybe I might not live through the night. Well, I knew on the way home that even if my parents were not going to take me to the police, if I needed to, I would have crawled on my hands and knees with a smile to get to the cost myself. So I knew there was no question in my mind as a 14-year-old I was going to disclose. But then again, my attack was by a total stranger. Had it been a relative, it might have been a whole different set of dynamics for me. Right? So how can you get a teenager to disclose? Again, I just, you know, I think they need to know that the behavior is wrong and that if they do disclose, if they get the strength to disclose, that you're going to trust them, you're going to believe them, and you're going to help them. Right? And, and I think you can have that conversation now with kids. If you've got a 14, 15, 12, 16-year-old kid, it's okay to take them aside and say, listen, this stuff happens. We're all aware of it. We're adults. Look at the news. Use the story in the news today. I told you, Victor Perez is a hero. He pulled over a guy who had abducted an 8-year-old girl and held her for 11 hours. Use that story on the news tonight as a catalyst to have a conversation with your adolescent or teenage kid. And say, hey, you know, if anything like this ever happened to you and one of your friends, you need to know you can come to me. If you come to me, I'll believe you. I'll help you. And, I, and, and that way, when it does happen, the child knows what to do. So let's, let's use these great stories in the news. Don't use the stories where the kid ends up dead in the news. Use the story about Victor Perez saving the life of an eight-year-old girl today. Right? Amber Alert kicked in. Victor Perez saved an eight-year-old girl in Fresno, California. She was abducted and held for at least 11 hours by a pedophile. Well, excuse me, I don't know if he's a pedophile, but I don't know if he's been arrested in the past, but they busted him on kidnapping uh, uh, and sex charges today. But use that good outcome of a positive story in the news today as a catalyst to bring this topic up with a kid, your own kids, and, and let them know that if, if they disclose, you will trust them, you'll believe them, and you will help them. Yeah. Keith, we have about 45 seconds left into the show. It went by so fast, and we're definitely going to have to have you back on. If someone wanted to get in contact with you for your book, um, get an autographed book, or have you even come in and speak, or uh, for whatever reason, uh, give, give, uh, let's give out your uh, contact information, please. Great. Thank you very much. 
The book is called Men in My Town. It's by Keith Smith. It's available on Amazon.com. And my email, and I encourage you, if you want to get in touch with me, just email. Email is real easy. It's the name of the book. It's meninmytown at AOL.com. Awesome, awesome. Keith, we thank you so much for coming on tonight. Uh, We've got to have you again because, you know, we only scratched the surface of what we needed to talk about. So, we, again, we appreciate your courage and your honesty and your openness and your transparency. Brian, Greg, thank you for having me on the show. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. We look forward to having you back on again. Yes, sir. sir. With that being said, you've been listening to the Abundant Solutions Hour. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we ask that you join us again next week, same time, same station. Good evening. God bless you all, and good night.